Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert with my co-host, Sports Radio 610, Sean Bajani. And this one, we've got the latest Texans news, a preview of the Broncos game and the UH football coaching search. It's a little interesting, but Sean, the big news Wednesday, Titus Howard out for the year. Aaron Wilson reported that he had been managing a knee issue for weeks, but a patellar tendon issue happened on Sunday. Is there a long-term concern for Titus going into next year for you? I think there's got to be any time a guy's dealing with uh, a knee situation that's going to require surgery. The future's untold. The future's uncertain. One thing is for certain, the Texans are going to pay his butt quite a bit of money, given that three-year, $56 million extension that he'd signed this past offseason to make him the fourth highest paid right tackle in all of football. That That's a title right now, and it's probably going to be passed up, you know, this offseason coming up. But point is, it's a lot of money. The cap, you know, those numbers always kind of throw me for a loop. What I think is a lot of money isn't a lot of money to other people that break this stuff down on the day-to-day. But $56 million owed to an individual with much of that guaranteed over the course of the next three years is a lot of money for an organization. The good thing is, is for the Texans, they have a lot of money this offseason. So that contract, whether you thought it was a good or bad one at the time, and whatever you think about it now, whatever it means in the future, isn't going to hinder the Texans in terms of what they want to do, I don't think, uh, free agency-wise this offseason. So that's the good news. Their only backup tackle that I know of that's signed for next year, correct me if I'm wrong, would be Charlie Heck, right? Because George Fant, he's he's not signed for next year. Um, is there anybody right. else that's signed for next year to be a tackle? So it's if, if Titus can't play next year, they, they need to work on a, a Fant extension, I would think. Well, and, you know, let's let's see how George Fant does. Today, George Fant did not practice. <laughs> so, terrific. Um, yeah, you got that to worry about. They, tackle depth is a real issue. It's kind of reared its ugly head for the first time since, you know, training camp. If you recall, you know, they went out and they, they, they swung a deal for Josh Jones. And I think they swung that deal for tackle depth, in my mind, it was for Laramie Tunsil. Turns out they needed to use him literally game one at left guard. They've been riding with Fan at right tackle ever since, but he's just kind of been that swing guy, that, you know, emergency, emergency guy in case they need a guard or in case they need a tackle. But you, it, it's really a good thing that they signed Charlie Heck uh, and that he's healthy, you know, when he is, because there's no guarantee with Laramie Tunsil. He's been battling a knee issue since day one, and he's under a load management program, even though the Texans, I don't think, flat out come out and said it. I mean, just look at the injury report every single Wednesday. Dude's chilling in street clothes on the side, and some days he's even limited the next or limited on Fridays. So he's an issue going forward this season. Titus is obviously a non-factor. George Fant being banged up today, that's got to be a little bit of a concern because you are left with Charlie Heck, some dude named Jalen Thomas who's on the practice squad. (laughs) You're slim pickings, man. Um there's no J. Austin to even fall back on. <laughs> J.J. Watt? Can J.J. Watt play tackle? I mean, if we need him to come in? My guess Maybe. is I'm sure he could give you a handful of quality snaps at any stinking position possible, <laughs> wherever you needed him. Like D'Amico said last week, he was like, hey, we're here for you. 
quick reminder for everybody that checks us out regularly. We got Rockets conversation with Ben Dubose tomorrow. Make sure your notifications are on so you're getting all of our updates on all the shows that we got going up, audio, video as well. Sean, in, in Juice Scruggs' first NFL game, when he was thrown into the fire against an elite defensive front in a big-time battle for first. So this was no, like, easy first game. This was, like, legit first game, no warning, you're in the game, all that. 46 snaps, zero sacks, zero penalties, a 60.9 pro football focus grade, Sean. Yeah, I mean, in the eye, the eye test, you know, in my opinion, says he even did better than that. I thought he um, had an impactful first series. The next one that tight, you know, Titus went out uh, on third down. The very next offensive series, Juice was pulled a couple of times. Was out on the screen. Was out on a double team. Was making an impact. Was a force. And he's he's like that one physical guy that I think really complements from a left side point of view. Look what Shaq Mason is to the right side, the toughness, the physicality that D'Amico Ryan says they play with already, which I think is up for interpretation, you know, at least on a consistent basis. He's at least adding that. Um, We'll see what it looks like going forward. I talked to Michael Dieter today, who's obviously stepped in, had to be their starting center the last uh, few games. I I asked him, you know, what's it like, you know, again, you know, working with somebody new and in a pinch, against a pressures that you were facing this past week, what the communication was like, what the challenges physically were like. And he said, you know what, Scruggs, he's a baller, man. He's already had to be the next man up. And so being a student of both guard and center positions, not going to, not going to say that, uh, you know, Scruggs moved in there seamlessly, but Dieter pretty much said like he did. <laughs> you know, it was easy for him, even though he only had a real couple of days of practicing in the film room with the guys upon being activated last week. Uh, they were all impressed with the way that Juice Scruggs rose to the occasion. So it's kind of weird because it's probably a blessing in disguise because Titus Howard was stinking it up at left guard. We all know that the eye test, the PFF grades, whatever metric you want to use. He wasn't being effective. He wasn't very good. He looked out of place. He didn't look like the athlete that we talk about him being at that position, but Juice Scruggs did. He's one of the worst rated guards, according to PFF in the, in the league, Titus Howard is. And, and, you know, Juice Scruggs, very in the middle of the pack, if you just go by those grades. And watching him in preseason, Sean, and getting a taste in this game, I'm sold Casario nailed that pick. And if the only player taken in this draft was C.J. Stroud, you could argue this was the best Texans draft ever. But, Sean, the best Texans draft prior to this year, 06, when Kubiak got Mario, D'Amico, Eric Winston, Owen Daniels, and friend yes. of the show, David Anderson, that was, was the one. To, I was trying to think of that, um, you know, earlier today uh, because that came up on, on the morning show. I was sitting in for Seth Payne with Pendergast and we were kind of talking about the same thing. And I asked the question, I was like, you know, is this draft the greatest in Texans franchise history? And I said that thinking of that class, but I couldn't remember, man, was that 2008, 2009, seven? What was it? You said it was 2006. Yes. Just because of the totality, right. And the impact players that were obviously here for a while with this team, for that reason, I think 
I, I got to give it to that class just because you had so many contributors. If you want to even say average to plus players, I think that's absolutely fair. But well, it's there's no question that before this year, that was the best. But yeah. look, unless CJ Stroud, you get a franchise quarterback, yeah, that's got to yeah. Unless CJ Stroud just terrible from here on out or something, you know. Look, this year Stroud, Will Anderson, Tank, Scruggs. The underrated yeah. Jared Patterson with maybe some hope for Hutchinson, Wharton, Toa Toa. Sean, if there's injuries, it's a pretty incredible what Casario has done. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it's certainly got the potential to be the greatest uh, in franchise history. And I, I hope that it is. It's certainly trending that way. The the real deal this offseason is you recognizing and, you know, knock on wood, these guys stay healthy for the most part, right? I mean, obviously Tank didn't practice today, but it's not deemed to be too serious with a calf situation. But if you feel really good health-wise, productivity-wise about all of these guys as we do now going into the offseason, you have to understand if you're Nick Casario and the Texans, you've got a really darn good foundation in place. And now it's about building on top of that, creating depth. And really, you have an opportunity to get very picky you know, at positions and, and be, be very selfish. That's what you should be doing. That's what you work so hard for in, in, in creating flexibility um, from a financial sense, personnel sense to allow your organization to do it in an off season, go out and get the very best guy at the next key position that you're lacking in. And so I, that's what I'm, I'm ex- already excited for the rest of this season, but I'm really excited for the off season for the Texans in that point of view. Yeah. And a lot of people are, you know, they're talking about what do they need and blah, blah. Hey, let's uh, let's kind of enjoy this because we thought there was no yeah. way we're going to be talking potential playoffs this mm-hmm. year. Um, going back to Sunday's postgame, Sean, I was wrong about the Tank Dell out of bounds. Uh, play, you know, the wide receiver, uh, you know, sideline catch that he made. Yeah, I, I saw the photos. He was in bounds. But, you know, I just got to say, it's sad that CBS had such poor angles on a marquee game, but you know, it's just like you come to expect this for a Texans production. I've only been watching this for 20. I it's, it's, it's a joke that how many can you bring more than two cameras to a Texans game? It's simple, man. It's really not that hard. I don't care if it's a primetime game. I don't care if it's the chiefs and the Cowboys, two of the most attended and watched teams in the last for the chiefs. It's been, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) <laughs> I don't care if it's that game. I don't care if it's a Jets-Browns game. It needs to be the same amount of cameras. You need to be able to cover every angle, every line, end zone, back of the end zone, sideline, the whole bit. That's one. The integrity and, of the game shouldn't depend on how many well, cameras that you bring to it. No, you're you're right. But, you know, you want to talk about integrity of the game. You know, how about just getting the easiest thing to do in the history of anything correct? How many times do you see, and I've harped on this for years, how many times do you see a play allowed to be gotten off when the play clock has already come, you know, expired? Like, that's the most ridiculous. It's time. <laughs> we can all see that. And sometimes it's called, sometimes it's not. But my point is, one, camera's easy fix. Get that done. Number two, plays like the Tank Dell on the sideline should never happen on in or out calls. Every single catch like that, that it, that in which like control of the football is not in question, but only in and out should automatically be called a catch. And quite frankly, that review, that, that review only took place because the official in the booth 
called for it to be reviewed. The initial call by the letter of the law was a catch. A freaking side judge that was 20 yards away came sprinting down the sideline and convinced or overruled the official that was right on top of the play. So when that went to review, it should have been determined that the initial call on the field was in fact a catch, which then would have made it impossible to overturn because of the technology that was available to them that day at that time. There was nothing discernible that where you could say, yeah, he didn't have both feet down or he did have both feet down. The call on the field would have stood. And that's just kind of where I'm at on it. And I really think, Robert, every year, every year, every offseason, the NFL makes slight changes, even some major changes, obviously here, you know, more so in the last three years to some rules. I think this is another one that needs to be done this off season because it's not going to be the, ne- the last time you see something like this. God forbid it happens in a big time game, which obviously we've seen before to various degrees. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that photographers could get better shots than they could get with, you know, <laughs> yeah. network video cameras. I, I just don't understand it. And it. Look, I did some math at the tank play was real to catch. Mm-hmm. And Amendola, he was able to kick that shorter field goal. Would have been a shorter field goal if they kick it right there. What's the difference? And, and then if the refs hadn't screwed up the Stephen Nelson holding that directly led to a field goal, and if they hadn't called the bogus Tavier pass interference, the second one to me was more bogus. This yeah. first one, maybe you could argue the second one, no way. That's a 10-point swing altogether. And even if the Texans don't get Stingley's interception, thanks to the Petrie holding call, which he held it, and I agree, and that was seven points right there. It's still a three-point swing and a three-point game. So, Sean, according to the math, we had a tie game at the end of that if they got everything right. I just want to te- Texas fans to know it wasn't a big, it was not going to be a blowout if they had gotten everything right because you go over, you know, everything, all the little things, right. and it only adds up to ten points for the Texans and it adds up to seven points for Jacksonville. But that's three points that decides the game. It did. And, you know, at the end of the day, the refs were a factor. They're not the reason the Texans lost. They had many opportunities to take advantage of the situation. And look, we'd seen CJ lead a a game-winning touchdown drive. We'd seen him lead a game-winning field goal drive in recent weeks. He had another opportunity miraculously for as poorly as the Texans played, for as badly as they at times did get screwed from an officiating standpoint. They had helped out too. Some way, somehow, they still controlled their own destiny the final three minutes of that football game, and it just wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough. And that was just the tough part. I, I still can't get over. I've watched it so many times, man. I feel bad for the guy, and I'm glad he's back, and I hope he has a good week of practice. But Matt Amendola, literally, you know, the kick of his life, perfect right down the middle in just mere inches. Like, I kept seeing on social media people griping about, oh, they moved the ball back two yards. You know, it wasn't two yards. It was a not a great spot after the Nico Collins catch, but you could say the same thing, you know, like maybe Matt Amendola after, you know, he had his ass saved uh, by the timeout. Maybe he tells Cam Johnston to just move up a hair because 58 is a little crazy. If we can get this thing closer to 57, <laughs> you know, let's not set up eight yards back of the line of scrimmage, maybe seven, seven and a half. Yeah. You know, you can play your games yeah. like that, and it's just, it drives you crazy. The thing that bothers me sometimes is when I see, and I love John McClain, you know, I'm friends with him and everything, but John tweeted out, well, Texans didn't deserve to. Uh, I'm going to do my John McClain Twitter voice. 
Texans didn't deserve to win that game anyway because th- their line sucked and they're this, th- you know, and this was terrible. Look, let me tell you, I watch a lot of NFL games. There's a lot of teams that win that don't deserve to win. The, the officiating played a part in that game and you don't want to see it. And the fans could gripe about it because it was a joke. It was terrible. Yeah. It, it affected the score. And this shouldn't be accepted because, well, it, look, every single game in the NFL just about comes down to a couple of plays. I mean, it's the NFL. It's a game of inches. Sure. It's a game of a player there. <laughs> and you can go, hey, the Jags didn't deserve to win. They had some clown drop a touchdown pass that hit him right in the hands. They had this happen. They had that happen. They they had that stupid one-yard bad play at the end of the first half. They, they didn't deserve to win because of that. They didn't oh, deserve sure. to win because Doug Peterson right. did some stupid stuff. Well, and it's not the first time the Texans have, uh, you know, witnessed the opposition dropping a touchdown pass in the end zone that they should have had. It's happened twice, two times out of the last three games. Great coaching. Um, it's great coaching. <laughs> you know, it, I, I, I think about, like uh, – to me, it's a fascinating conversation, you know, because fandom is so strong in football and, you know, respective to its sport, it's like that in everything, but football, especially, you know, you think about how special a no hitter or a perfect game is in major league baseball, like a perfect game is a perfect game for a reason from a defensive perspective. It's perfect. Nothing bad happened. No errors, no hits, no runs. It was perfect. You don't need to strike everybody out, but you did your job. You executed somebody. Everybody did to some degree, right? Whereas in football, tell me the last perfect game you watched. Most football games, whether it's the NFL, college, high school, doesn't matter, can be some ugly sons of guns even when a team is scoring 40 points. You might give up 35. (laughs) <laughs> you know, even if you shut a team out, you didn't pitch a perfect ball game. You probably had a three and out. You probably had a self-inflicted wound, a penalty, an interception, a fumble, something. And so in that regard, I, I get get it what McLean's saying. The Texans had many opportunities they didn't take advantage of. Well, in the same breath, yeah, nobody's saying that the referees didn't play a, a, a big part in some critical situations for the Texans. I mean, my God, third downs four defensive penalties on third downs, two offensive penalties on third downs. Those self-inflicted wounds absolutely do hurt, whether they're right or wrongly called. All right, let's go to the Broncos game. They've got five wins in a row against the Packers, Chiefs, Bills, Vikings, and Browns. Not a super light schedule. They weren't beaten up on the Carolinas of the world five times. So this is a legit run that they've got, Sean. And I checked out. Russell Wilson's stats, and he's only thrown for more than 200 yards in one of those games. So it's not like he's going off, although he's not making mistakes, eight touchdowns, no interceptions in the last five games. What about you? Do you have any angles on this one? Be wary of the Broncos. I mean, be wary of a team that's playing, you know, good, sound, clean football. That's the most important thing. Russell Wilson I, won a game for after throwing 134 yards this past weekend. It, it doesn't always come down to spectacular numbers, you know, from a quarterback. We know that, um, yeah. you know, being around here as long as we have. But, I mean, the guy's 6.9 yards per attempt. He's a game-managing quarterback right now. He takes exceptionally good care of the football. 
best touchdown to interception ratio in the entire league. They do just enough to get it done, but the great equalizer here, you know, what has really carried them over this last month and a half of of, of really good football that they played, they turned the hell out of the ball over, man. I mean, it, it's a physical, physical team. They're second in the NFL, I think just behind the Minnesota Vikings and forced fumbles with 14 forced fumbles. They've recovered 12 of them. That's tops in the entire league. So they're physical in that sense. They're going to put a hat on you. They're going to try to rip the ball out, create some chaos. And so when you're doing that, and I know they're, they can hemorrhage, you know, some yards on the ground, but my gosh, if you're them at this point, creating all of these turnovers, especially, I forget the number over the last five games, it's been a lot. You'll give up some yards on the ground to the Texans, and they very well might. But if you're Devin Singletary or or Damian Pierce or C.J. Stroud, God forbid he has to run for his life as much this week as he did this past weekend, you better make sure you're taking care of that football because the Broncos' track record says they're going to make you pay. That's my biggest fear. My fear is Laramie Tunsil. Is he healthy? Is he because it was like no, was last week an anomaly? Is or is this going to be the normal thing for Here's him? Here's the thing, you know, with Laramie Tunsil, I really wanted to ask somebody about that play in particular where uh, Josh Allen just came free untouched. I did have a chance to talk about it with somebody that knows their football, Clint Sterner. Yesterday, he kind of just chalked it up to, you know, what that's that's a very you know confusing look when the wrong protection is called and the wrong protection was called it was not corrected they should have slid the protection to the left the free rusher should have been coming from the right even with the slot corner that came in on the blitz i mean three different dudes got to cj stroud uh at one instance or another during that sack that was costly laramie tunsil look is he at fault should he have recognized something Maybe he did, but at the end of the day, you do what you're told to do. And if you don't, then it could be your ass. It could be your quarterback's butt. You know what I mean? I don't worry about him in terms of like being able to execute because more times than not, he's taking great care of his quarterback. I worry about just the depth and his his health. He's not okay. He's hurt. He's banged up. And it's going to be that way for the foreseeable future. You just hope that it doesn't cost C.J. Stroud um, a situation who showed up on the injury report today as a full participant, but He's got a thigh situation. I thought it was a neat set of thigh, but we it was obviously very clear that the guy was hobbled, you know, this past weekend. So I I worry about the offensive line in general because you have to admit, Robert, you go back and you watch that offensive line from the moment that Juice Scruggs came in. Sure, personally, he did pretty good, but I think there was pretty clearly some communication issues on that line that they weren't calling the right protections. They were doing it too late. They weren't executing. They were unsure. Michael Dieter especially. And I worry about him working alongside Juice Scruggs and Laramie Tunsil. Who's helping who and at what cost? Yeah, we don't talk about it enough, but I also notice sometimes Singletary or, you know, whoever back, whoever's in the backfield, they look confused. Some they look like they don't know which guy that they're supposed to block or which assignment, or they miss somebody. Oh. That's been an issue. The other thing I I was curious about, Noah Brown looks like he's going to play. I assume, but Jimmy Ward or what? I mean, because I I feel like this defense badly misses you because I like I've said, I'm out on Jalen Petrie right now. But you know, you're missing your your backup safety, your best backup safety who's gone for the season. You know, Eric Murray, MJ Stewart, every, you know, all these guys are out. They need Jimmy Ward back. Yeah, Jimmy Ward was a DNP today. Uh, but the good news is he was there. He was dressed. He was on a bike. He was seen, 
right? So maybe tomorrow he's limited. Maybe this is a ramp-up week for him. Lord knows he's had time. They've obviously been very careful with hamstring injuries this year. They had a lot of them. You remember early on in camp, it was a hamstring. And then as the season went along, guys were breaking bones. It was a foot. It was a hand. We had a million of those, it felt like. So they're going to be careful with him. He's super vital to this defense. I mean, D'Amico said it a million times, and you can see it. And the fact now, too, that they're just really one fewer quality defensive back short in that room now with um, Shaq Griffin being released today. I mean, you need all the good, quality, healthy veteran bodies you could get. And so as soon as Jimmy Ward's good to go, that changes things. People forget And I'm still fascinated by this, and I don't understand it to the degree that it actually has, you know, the the value that he actually brings. But he spoke about it a couple of times before the season even started, when he was first signed, how he's able to see the defense. And because everybody's on the same page and he trusts his linebacker, he can make some calls back there from center field, too. He's just as valuable and vital of a voice as a Denzel Perryman or a Blake Cashman or whoever's wearing that green dot. When you talk to Bobby Slowick tomorrow, mm-hmm. the question that I want is the third and one and the fourth and one. And you and I have yeah. talked about in the post game. They had the third and one, the fourth and one, where Stroud's like throwing it down the field. Now, I looked back at those two plays. Mm-hmm. And from what I could tell, and I saw an all 22 post on one of them, Singletary was open quickly. They ran a quick slant over the middle. For sure, I saw the all-22 on one of those plays. He made the cut. The linebacker was already behind him. If Stroud let him, right, there was nobody else playing center field there. You know, if he throws it too low, there's a guy that was, like, in his lane a little bit that was backed up a little bit defensively. But if you floated over that guy, Singletary was there. He was there. He was – it looked like both plays, Singletary was an immediate outlet. So the question that I want you to pose, Bobby Slowick, and hopefully we can – talk about this next week is what do you tell CJ Stroud in those situations? Do you tell him to go to that quick outlet because look, just get the one yard or you tell him to, you know, if he thinks there's something downfield and it's there to, to wait for it because you're taking a big, those throws are harder. That's a question, you know, um, I'm sure will be asked. And if it's not, I'll certainly ask it. Uh, I always try to get him in, but CJ Stroud kind of alluded alluded to not that particular play, but the idea, and I think that was kind of the impetus of the question. He talked about it today. I think the direct question was, is how do you measure yourself between, you know, trying to do too much, always trying to figure out how to make a play, and then taking what the defense gives you sort of thing. I think that's pretty much how it was asked. And Stroud said that, hey, you know what, sometimes, and I'm paraphrasing, sometimes I don't, but I feel like I've done a much better job as the season's gone along taking what the defense is giving me. And he used two words, and it was aggressively controlled, I think, is what the two words were, where he always has that aggressive mindset, but he understands or he's learning and understanding more now when to be controlled and make the smarter play. And I think he's probably got those two downs in his mind very vividly on maybe what he should have done. And I couldn't get it in, but I would have loved to have asked the follow-up of third and one, fourth and one, having looked back on it. Is that something that you kind of feel like you wished, you know, you would have checked down to Singletary on or found something a little bit faster? Just, Just thinking, not home run, but at least advance the ball to make it 
instead of a 58, you know, a 51 yard field goal attempt, something like that. I, that's CJ has no qualms and nor does Sloak for that matter about owning up when it's their fault, when they made a poor decision. So I'm going to be very interested to hear Bobby Sloak kind of take us through his thought process and calling those two pass plays because how they wound up and who they wound up to as incompletions were obviously not the first or second reads, maybe even the third or fourth options for CJ Stroud on those, uh, on those two plays. Yeah. And, and they, they, Gave up the ball. They were lucky. They got the ball back. At that point, there wasn't damage except time taken off the clock, which was valuable because that was, I think, you know, kind of mid to early fourth quarter and and time was running out. They're down two scores at the time. And, you know, another part is I did. Oh, yeah. You're talking about the third and one and the fourth and one, too. Yeah, I was kind of meshing that one in the third and 12 and the fourth and 12 together at the end. But still, nonetheless, (laughs) you would you would have at least advanced the ball and gotten yourself in scoring position. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both, I mean, it, it, it all fits together because mm-hmm. what I'm talking about, what you're talking about, what we talked about in the Bengals game, when he threw the interception, you know, yeah. the, 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 the throw that he also made, you know, after that, the next possession where it was third down and he threw the ball down the field instead of like, Hey, get something easy right there. So um, yeah, I just, um, Real frustrating, and hopefully uh, they figure that out. D'Amico even alluded. I thought it was interesting. He alluded to the fact that, you know, he said, yeah, C.J. Stroud, he missed some stuff. I mean, he didn't say Stroud, but he said we missed some stuff, reads-wise and stuff like that. But I want to switch gears a little bit to the Coug football search, Sean, and the names getting strong interest to lanes, Willie Fritz, UTSA's Jeff Trailer. And UNLV's Barry Odom, who I'm very familiar with because he was a Missouri coach for a while, my my school. I watched him. It, it didn't go well. Let's just put it that way. But uh, Fritz and Trailer probably getting the most traction. What do you think? I don't mind them. I mean, where I where I lie on those, and I haven't done as much work on Fritz as I have Trailer. Um, they're they're both really good coaches. Okay, they can coach. The question is. While Jeff Trailer, particularly, I think finished first within his respective conference, CUSA and now um, AAC, first place in recruiting the last three years. My question always becomes when you're talking about a school that's new to a new conference like U of H is at such a pivotal time, can you recruit the Big 12? Can you recruit the Big 12? I bought in just like I think a lot of other people did on the idea that Dana Holgerson, who was familiar with the university, familiar with the conference, should have had better and utilized better recruiting pipelines, just flat out didn't. You know, it didn't work out. We were wrong. And to what degree, to what levels, I mean, who knows? It just doesn't, didn't work. That's my question, number one, for any coach that gets this U of H job is, can they be an impactful recruiter and talent evaluator within the Big 12 at a school that is in transition in many more ways than one? than just moving from one conference to the other, like U of H is and like Dana Holgerson said last week. So that that's number one. There's a guy who's been mentioned. I don't know how serious it is, depending on what report you read. Gary Patterson. The guy's 63, going on 64 years old. You know he has Big 12 experience, very successful at TCU, you know that sucker can recruit. He finished just behind Texas and Oklahoma almost every darn year and third in that conference with the top recruiting class, just behind those two schools. You ain't got to deal with those two schools anymore. They're out. He says he has the itch, but 
does he realize how much he's going to have to scratch and claw with U of H? And does he want to do that at the age of 63, 64? How effective can he still be? Because you know he's a great coach. But it comes down to being able to the dude you're coaching, the four- and five-star recruits getting amongst the best in your class, in your conference. I don't know. That that would be my favorite if the answer to those questions is a resounding yes. But it's always, always intriguing when a guy like Jeff Trailer has been mentioned multiple years now to get the big-time job didn't go for the A&M gig for whatever reason. I don't know how that fell through. If U of H can somehow pull that off, they might have themselves a winner in the most pivotal hiring cycle since um, the Cougs went and found uh, Tom Herman. Yeah, a couple of things. Patterson, overall at TCU, 22 years, 181 and 79. But in the Big 12, just 72 and 49. He had that 11-3 season in 17. Then he sort of fell off it and he never could quite recover. Seven and six, five and seven, six and four, three and five. So I don't know if it was things had changed a little bit as far as how you were recruiting in those last few years and he couldn't deal with it or, you know, just a bad set of circumstances. You don't know, but that's not a good four years, not something you, you know, that's Dana Holgerson stuff or worse right there that he had those last four well, years. So. You know- Recruiting, recruiting, at least, you know, by the numbers and where they were ranked nationally and within their conference weren't an issue. Do a much deeper dive. You always can. You know, what guys, what key positions was he really missing out on? And I'll say this, too. That is a really good point that you bring up, regardless of, uh, you know, the deep dive that you do on it. College football is different then. It is different. And it's it's a lot different now. Money's involved. His last year was 21. And so it was when the things had started to, the tides has started to shift. There's also some questions a little bit about he wasn't changing up his offense like he should have or whatever. And then yeah. the year after he leaves, they go, you know, to the national championship game. So you're wondering, okay, what, what did that guy do that Gary Patterson didn't do? I, I don't know. You mentioned uh, trailer, four seasons at UTSA, 38 and 14. Two of those 14 losses, though, were against the Coos. Kind of strange to hire the guy who couldn't beat the guy you just <laughs> fired. That's worth noting. I also want to I want to talk a little bit about Willie Fritz for a second because mm-hmm. if people don't know, and I'm guessing that they're not super familiar with Willie, but number one, he's the father of former KPRC sports anchor Lainey Fritz, once a guest on my Locked On Texans podcast. Right. Well, John, I know you you knew her too. She's still in Houston, so keep that in mind. You know, he probably wouldn't mind being around his daughter. They're close. Willie's 62 years old for, for a new guy that just in a power of five, 62, it's a little bit older, but dudes won everywhere. He's been in charge 208 and mm-hmm. 115 overall at central Missouri, 97 and 47, Sam Houston, 40 and 15, two national title game appearances in his brief time there at Georgia Southern 17 and seven at Tulane 54 and 46. That doesn't sound good, but dude, it's Tulane. They're not that good for a long time before he got there. He was 12 and 2 and 11 and 1 last two years, five bowl games in the last six seasons, and a win over number eight USC in last year's Cotton Bowl. Sean, yeah. like I said, not easy to win at Tulane. 
No, it's not easy, and that's something you certainly look at. You never know with these guys, man. I mean, is is he the big name that a lot of people are going to want? No. Does he come from a pedigree of a bigger school? I mean, no. It's It was kind of anomalous, right, that you got Dana Holgerson when you did, coming from West Virginia, Power 5 school, back to U of H. Yeah, I mean, there were some underlying factors there and some things that worked in your favor. I mentioned them. You know, he'd been here before, familiarity, recruiting pipelines. Uh, the promise of U of H getting into a bigger conference themselves, him leading him there. Not necessarily his fault that he inherited David Pyland and uh, you know John uh, O'Corn. Uh, he did get the first year of a Greg Ward though, and uh, did pretty darn good if I recall. Right? Wasn't that like the ten win season that he'd had with Ward? And and that was kind of like as good as it got. Right? I don't know if Willie Fritz, because maybe he overachieved with Tulane in some regard, you know, and got a couple of bowl wins, if that's the dude that U of H needs at this time. Can he recruit? Can he win big games over the course of the next three, four, five years as U of H is trying to make their imprint on the Big 12, which still, who knows how much that conference is going to change going forward. These are my concerns. And if you can get an up-and-coming coordinator, man, you know, from a major D1 school, somebody that's got some skins on the wall, I think that's what people want. That's what people, I think, would get excited about. At the end of the day, can you coach? Can you recruit? And you never know until you get these guys in. He recruited well enough to take a Tulane team and beat USC and Caleb Williams last year in a bowl game. You had to do something. Yeah. To, there's got to be some talent on two. I don't think they accidentally beat USC. And they had another big win last year. I'm blanking on who it was. But there was another big win that they had that was not an in-conference school. Oh, they've been a pain in the butt. Yeah, they've been a pain in the butt. There's no doubt. And look, man, anybody that you bring in, the question is, can they recruit? The only, re- the only guy that you know for sure can recruit is some guy that's gotten fired from a big – big five conference one of the you know that's the guy that you know but guess what he's got his own set of issues because he was fired from somewhere else probably so you know that's the situation you're you're that old bum phillips adage robert you know there are two kinds of coaches right then that are that's been fired and then that's going to be fired so that that should make you feel warm and fuzzy right (laughs) yeah and hey sean before we close it out congrats to the dynamo for the run to the western conference finals and it's unfortunate that you need Apple TV to see their games. Not really sure how that expands the fan base. That's one of my frustrations. Like I can't watch the games because, you know, I'm not going to pay just, just for the dynamo. I'm not paying for Apple TV. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm not paying Apple TV for a lot of other things that I'm interested in, but I'm, I'm super stoked. You know, I did some work for the dynamo, did some public address announcing work. And I really kind of took a, an added investment into their success. It was a lot of fun. I had a newfound appreciation for professional soccer, major league soccer. And so I'm very, very excited for the run that they're on right now, man. People are paying attention too. we were talking to uh, Dan Go Tara, the Houston Sports Awards, and we were talking a lot about the Dynamo in just the the pockets of the city that he's hearing from that are reaching out for support of the soccer team right now. It's kind of like untapped potential. And so the fact that they are very relevant in a major sports city with the big three is uh, is pretty huge. Yeah, the only issue that I had, and he was on for the Sports Awards, the only issue I had with the Sports Awards is Jose Altuve's home run against the Rangers was not in their moments of the year. I mean, they had the Fromber Valdez no-hitter 
which I mean, it's that's great and everything. And I understand that was a no hitter and all that. But come on, the moment of the year for the Astros was that Altuve home run. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't think about it. I mean, there were so many and, you know, you you put on the spot, you forget a lot of stuff. But I guess the thought was, is that, you know what, they didn't win it this year. They didn't win that series. And, you know, Fromber's no hitter. I mean, it was very very impressive that was one of the coolest no hitters that that you see i mean the closest thing to a perfect game you know (laughs) without getting it that's what we witnessed that night fremberg doing it but i think that's probably how they view that stuff and it again it's it's not perfect they they won the no hitter they won the game in the the playoffs you can argue well they got the no hitter but they didn't win the the world series i mean that's a poor argument a game's a game i mean you're not you're not winning the World Series every year. So, I mean, and and look, there there's great games in Astros history. We remember forever, even though they didn't win the World Series because they just, you know, there's just those moments. That's, that's a great point. Uh, one of my favorite moments, and maybe it's a little extra biased because I was actually there in person to witness it, you know, it was the Chris Burke 18-inning home run. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, that was one of my absolute favorites. Um <laughs> the Milo call was my ringtone for years. <laughs> it's like I geeked out over that thing way, way too long. I love the Jeff Kent home run, you know, the 10th inning oh, yeah. against the Cardinals. I mean, that was a fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, everybody remembers the Pujols home run, but guess what? We won that series. You know, it's like, you know, it's that's just the way the playoffs work. Sometimes the stuff that lasts in your memories a lot of times is, that's true. you know, not how the whole series went, but just, yeah, that was my one little thought on uh, the Houston Sports Awards. But it's cool that they've got it. And I love, you know, that they're doing that every year. And hopefully well, it's just it gets better and better. And it will. I mean, the fact that they've expanded it and are recognizing, you know, so many high school athletes and are telling those stories, that's huge. It's untapped potential in that regard, too. There's so many pockets in the city and outside of the city in in neighboring communities in which – May forget, man. These are these are kids, you know. There, there's parents and there's other siblings and family members that are locked in to those kids playing every Friday night. I mean, and it hits a fever pitch this time of year with you know the playoffs in full swing. And so the fact that those stories are being told, not just from a football sense, but you know, you're recognizing a lot of high schoolers, young up and coming athletes that you know may very well be representing. Um, you know, the professional sports teams in this city wearing their jerseys one day. Yeah, and you want to one day go, hey, remember when Andrew Luck was at the Houston Sports Awards? Remember when Vince Young was at the Houston Sports Awards? Remember when Emeka Okafor was at the Houston Sports Awards? These are guys that I covered in high school. I mean, you're you're Mm -hmm. preaching the – I covered high school sports for almost 20 years in Houston. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, just some legends that have walked through that I got a chance to cover and – see their games and stuff like that. And yeah, it's, it, that's a great thing that they're doing for the high school kid. Why not? I mean, it's just like you're doing the Houston sports awards, include the high school kids. The touchdown club does a good job with that stuff, but yes, you know, it'd be great for a, you know, a big television event like the Houston sports awards. So that's kind of nice, but uh, just a quick reminder, Texans uh, will do their typical live post game show on Sunday with the Broncos tomorrow. It's rockets conversation with Ben DuBose. We're recording this before the Rockets game tonight. I'm figuring it's a loss because I just saw on my phone that Jamal Murray is going to be playing 
for the Nuggets and Fred Van Vliet will not be playing for the Rockets. And so uh, between those two facts, I'm going to say we're probably going to be talking about two straight losses, unfortunately. Hope I'm wrong. Well, Hope I'm wrong. We should get a pretty heavy dose, good heavy dose of uh, Cam Whitmore then if Fred Van Vliet's out. I would hope so. I've already posted that up on Twitter. So, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. All right. We'll talk to you guys later. Sean, I'll see you on Sunday. Yes, sir. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hunter!